but in the midst of this study truly became my prayer for each and every one of us, for fathers, for men, for women, for our children. So I read it as a prayer for each and every one of you today. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. The word of God says to us in Paul's prayer, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You may be seated. Praise God. Just by a way of quick reminder, as I know there were several people out sick last week, and from our study last week of the first eight verses, we could hear Paul's compassion and the heart of a pastor, and as an apostle, as he began this very Christocentric letter with, with a united call to thanksgiving for all that the Father has done. And in so doing, begins his prayer here with in specific truths, reminding the Colossians and all of us the, the, for the basis of their thanksgiving. He had heard directly from Epaphras about the result of the work of the gospel, how its power from God through Christ had transformed the soil in their hearts, planting the very seeds of truth, of of reality, that they were now bearing fruit in faith and in love and upon a foundation of heavenly hope. All of this fruit increasing in a vigorous manner in greater and greater measure just as it was doing in all the saints throughout the world. And this introduction was for us a very profound reminder for all true believers that should stir us to prayer in abounding thanks to the Father for the powerful and nothing short of a miraculous work accomplished in us through Christ Jesus. To stir us up by examination of our own fruits that we bear as the branches of the true vine. And so help us in our times of despair, in our times of test and temptation, in our times of being burdened with the needs of our family and with the precious church that we remember and we preach to ourselves these great things that God has done in Christ and is doing and will do in eternity on behalf of weak, needy vessels like us. What Paul does not come and attack the Colossian heresy that's going on here directly or intently, we can see even in the focus and theme of his thankful introduction 
and the prayer that we're going to study today, that Paul is building this positive standard over and against something that is false in this heresy. And we will, Lord willing, see the nature of this error in the coming messages. Paul is also fundamentally reaching out to these dear saints that he has never met to strengthen the ties of fellowship between himself and this, even within the congregation and with other members of the body of Christ in the Lycus Valley. Now consider for a moment, just from our last study and today's reading, this compassion and care Paul has for these saints that he's never met. Only receiving the good report from Epaphras, how willing he is to stir up their souls with thanksgiving and now to offer regular, consistent, concerted intercession on behalf of these strangers who are very dear saints. Paul not only lives in the reality of his own constant need for daily grace, for as Piper calls it, future grace, But he strives in his regular times of prayer to remember others in the same need. We we cannot overlook the detail, the depth of detail here, but even more, we must see the purpose, the need in knowing God, having the mindset of the Father, the mind of Christ. And Paul will tell us both the how and the why. And this is what Paul has in mind as he begins this this pericope of prayer report to the Colossians. Again, last week we looked at Paul's thanksgiving for all the fruitful evidences and testimony about the work of the gospel. And now Paul is paralleling many of these gospel fruit realities in the lives of these believers and expounding upon them in this prayer in these verses. So for this reason, Paul says, we, which is he and Timothy, have in our regular times of prayer, we've continued to ask the Father on your behalf for specific needs critical for your spiritual growth, for your walk in holiness, for your sanctification. Not not high-level generalities, oh, we pray for blessings and comfort and ease and sufficiency, but what is critical to their souls, what brings true joy, what brings contentment with thanksgiving and praise. And the overriding theme and content of, of content of his prayer for these saints, and what should be ours as well in our own prayer and our prayer for others, is that we may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is our overriding theme. What is it exactly to be filled with the knowledge of his will? Is it just to seek out specific direction about a particular need or matter in our life that we really don't know what to do, we don't know how to handle it? In some cases, yes. It's a very real need. But the greater intent here and what should be our greater understanding is our being the recipient of the fullness of knowing him as God and his mind and the mind of Christ as they are revealed, as they are illuminated to us in the scripture by his spirit. It's having a a deep-seated desire. 
a hungering within our soul to be filled with the fullness of all that God is and that he alone can offer to us in knowing him and his son. How large is the expanse of the garden in your heart where we want our Savior to abide? How much room do we make and seek to make for our beloved? Or is there only a little room in the corner of our souls where we want him to be confined? However, the verb used by here, plero, I want to say it's a divinely inspired verb, carries the meaning that God is the implied agent. He alone is the one who can do the filling. It is through the means of the Spirit's work in giving to us individually, personally, a deep and abiding understanding of the reality of Christ in his person, in his glories, in his accomplished work, in his love, in his peace, in his grace, his patience, his long-suffering, his kindness, his presence, his joy. It is only by his word speaking to us. It is the truth we just heard about, not our imposing our own natural understanding onto the word of God, wanting to fit our meaning into it, but letting it speak directly to our heart, our soul, and our mind. And this isn't a unique prayer for Paul or a request. We hear the same Thanksgiving prayer in the, for the Corinthian church. In chapter 1, verses 4 to 6, Paul says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. And we hear this to the, in the, to the church of, of, in Rome, to the Romans. You're very familiar with this. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies in a living, a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is and that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And his exhortation here is that we are in a continuous working, a continuous state of being transformed, persevering in this lifelong process of knowing God, knowing his mindset, knowing his ways, that results in an inward transformation and ultimately outward fruit. Then our proving, or rather approving, Mazo is nothing less than understanding and agreeing with what God wants of us. All of this with a view of putting it into practice, into reality. Listen to Christ's words himself for those who would earnestly seek and know his Father, of whom he came to reveal in Luke 11. Verses 9, 10, and 13. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. 
For whoever asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. And if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to you, to those who ask him? And who is the Spirit who is the Spirit revealing to us but the Father, but the Son, but his ways, his attributes, his graces, his promises on our behalf. And the truth and reality of the Father and all of his ways, his glory that I pray we all seek to see, is only, can only be spiritually appraised. It is by seeking out and humbly asking the Spirit of God to make these truths known to you and a reality within your heart and life, firmly establishing you and rooting you in Christ Jesus. It is then with this inner soulish working that we gain wisdom. We grow in our knowledge and understanding more of who God is, his ways, commands that have a, both a present and an eternal impact on our lives. This is in order that we may be able to discern truth from deception and obey the truth given to us, pursuing righteousness as the purity and uprightness of our Christian character. Paul continues in verse 9 to not only convey the overriding theme and content of his prayer, but he gives the purpose and what must be our purpose in the midst of knowing God and his ways. It is not an end in itself. It is not for the sake of mere knowledge to be stored up in thoughts alone, bearing no impact, having no impact on our attitude or our desires or our expression. Paul tells them that this knowing God, this mental and attitudinal realignment is to produce fruit, to produce a behavioral transformation. He says it this way, so that we may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and please him in all respects. How are we to walk worthy of the Lord and all that he has done for us and in what manner or aspect of our daily lives do we please him? This again is a consistent and familiar exhortation to walk and live from Paul. We see it in Ephesians, Philippians, Thessalonians, and Romans with regard to the gospel, to their calling, and to God himself. Paul uses the same form of the verb in each of these exhortations that implies a purpose. It is a determined walk, a person's purposeful walk along the road that we must travel on in life, in our manner of life, wherever and in whatever circumstances that road may take us to. I think what Paul also has here in mind here is what we see in the wisdom literature. Proverbs 2 compares the path or the walk of life that is based on and in the source of wisdom, which is only found in Christ, rather than the natural ways of this world. Paul is also refuting here the oral traditions of the false teaching being promoted in Colossae. Proverbs 2, verses 1 through 12, speaks of the person and purpose of wisdom and its impact on our lives. If you would, turn there with me to Proverbs chapter 2. I want to read these 12 verses. They're powerful, the promises that are here. 
Proverbs chapter 2. My son, wonderful Father's Day exhortation. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment and lift your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity guarding the paths of justice, and he preserves the way of his godly ones. Then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity and every good course. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you to deliver you from the way of evil and from the man who speaks perverse things. And just as here in Proverbs discloses Christ in both the person and the source of wisdom, he also imparts true wisdom. It's also in Colossians verse 10 of chapter 1 here that Christ the Lord sets the standard of our worthy walk as the Lord over all aspect of creation and our lives. And it is in every way we are to purpose to please him. It is the result of walking in a manner worthy of him. We find this purpose statement of Paul's prayer, the emergence of the Christology that typifies this letter. And the final part of verse 10, Paul begins to identify and specifically describe the life that is worthy of the Lord and pleasing to him in every way by four, again, divinely inspired participial phrases that begin here and go through verse 11. The question is, how does this happen? What are, what are the means that this is carried out in our soul and our lives? Now, Paul, again, is going to po- point us to the very necessary relationship between knowledge and behavior. And he does it in these phrases that modify, that expand the meaning of walking and illustrate ways in which we're to please the Father. Second half of verse 10 says, bearing fruit in every good work, in increasing or growing in the knowledge of God. These two phrases are intentionally joined together because this is an echo of what the gospel is already at work within them and accomplishing among them in the local body. The intent of the Greek here is to cause the inner life, the heart, the soul to be productive and to cause it to become greater in quality in state and extent into every facet of experience. This is the essence, the responsibility of the believer to continue carrying out the work of the gospel in ourselves, as we just heard, and and in proclamation. There's some amazing imagery seen here in these two verbs, bearing fruit and growing It's the same language we find not only in the creation account, but also in the words of David. And this creation language is now implying that God is seeking through our response to the gospel a confirmation to his original purpose in creation. 
and now establishing his children as the human beings created in his image to glorify his son. And it is also David's comparison in the way of the righteous and the wicked in Psalm 1, with the righteous being firmly planted in the water of life. In these first three verses, David said, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the seat in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Now, what Paul was was thankful for back in verse 6, which is a wider scope of bearing fruit and increasing for the body as a whole, he's now bringing to focus on the intensive growth within each believer where bearing fruit in our lives is to manifest itself in every kind of good work. And growing is only possible in some real and vital relationship with the knowledge of God. Let me say it this way. In order for there to be fruit of the Spirit manifesting in our lives, in order for this to be an ever-increasing reality and experience, there must be a deep, abiding relationship with and in the knowledge of God and His purposes. Now, since these two participles were intended to be in the present tense, we simply understand this to mean that true believers will receive further knowledge of God more and more as we are obedient to and active with the knowledge already given and received through the Word of God. Not some fresh revelation beyond what is found in Scripture, but only what we find in the Word of God. And to live a life worthy of the Lord and one that pleases Him in any, every way, it will consist and thrive on bearing fruit and growing. And now Paul adds another participle in verse 11, that this is our only hope and means for this to be a reality in our life. Being strengthened with all power. Where do we look for our strength in this life? What are we initially inclined to rely upon, or who do we rely on when things go, get rough? And primarily, how are we to live a life bearing fruit and growing in the knowledge of God and increasing in this knowledge while we are also battling against spiritual forces and remaining sin? How can we do this without God's power, without his enabling grace? This life of walking with and in the Lord is a very near reality to all of us is that of being a high and a difficult call. And this is in accord with the gospel of Christ and of Paul. Yes, we all still have enemies without and within, and yet Paul powerfully reminds us of this eternal provision of strength that is available to us personally, individually, and from the Father himself. Remember this. God always gives us what he demands. He always gives us what he demands. So again, the intention in this tense of this verb, its present tense proclaims to us that this power is enabling, that is enabling, 
is continuously available through humble request and exercise by faith. And our dependence of Paul, what Paul's imply here is the Spirit of God. Now the extent and the purpose of God's empowerment to us is revealed in this little word, pas, or all. And in the present context, it signifies to us a marker of the highest degree. It is a complete, unlimited power. And since the relationship between strength and power are so closely related, we can paraphrase this in an accurate way to say that we are strengthened by God with the greatest strength imaginable. How can we say this? It's because of what Paul continues to pray. It is in a, according to his glorious might, of which this might is always associated closely with God the Father throughout the New Testament. Paul uses the same language in Ephesians 1, verses 18 to 20. In his prayer for these saints, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are all in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. It is the same resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead, this mighty strength beyond our comprehension that is available to our lives. And this is our only means of enabling us to walk in a manner pleasing to him, to bear fruit, and to grow. And this was also for Paul the great treasure he fully experienced each day through his life through the ministry and the, and the afflictions, the perplexing circumstances, the needs of his own life, also those of the church, the midst of his violent persecutions and being struck down, Paul could emphatically proclaim, as he does in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Beloved, the same power, this enabling, this strengthening is available through the Holy Spirit for our each and every need if we but ask and seek and knock. And we will see this next week, Lord willing, in the same chapter of Colossians, but it's very safe to say that to understand his glorious might is to realize and fully rely upon the strength that God supplies his child in accordance with and in the expression of his own glory. The Father's faithful purpose in providing all his power to strengthen us in our walk from what we see in verse 11 is so that we may have great endurance and patience in this life throughout the trials, in the midst of a job loss, the news of our cancer, the loss of our faith, our spouse when our faith is challenged, in the midst of seemingly unbearable temptations, and everything that will come into our lives to test the quality of our faith. It's in order that we may have and know joy. 
Not only the joy of having daily strength to endure, to have the capacity and a capability to persevere in trials, but the joy of having and knowing the divine, the heavenly and earthly ruler, our joy in the person and the work of the beloved Son of God. For it is Christ himself that assures us in Luke 22, 19, 21, 19, that by our endurance, we will gain our lives. We will know the reality of eternal life at work within us now. And we will assuredly gain that life of eternal reward in the presence where there is an abounding fullness of this joy that we are not yet fully able to comprehend. Yes, this, this joy is ours, and it can be a present reality as the fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in our life, according to Galatians 5.22. It's amazing how we're reminded of this joy expressed in the apostle's life. How else could he sing out from the stocks in the Philippian jail, bound with silence, great hymns to the living God, if there was not within him a power from God? And yet, do we exult in praise to the Lord while we're stuck in traffic and when the checkbook is showing a negative balance? For it's also this same heart of joy with which we are able to then exult in thanksgiving to the Father. As Paul continues in verse 12 with this final participial phrase in this prayer, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. A thankful heart, a truly thankful heart that is enlarging in its expression and thanksgiving to the sovereign Lord is the same heart that knows the reality of its spiritual experience in Christ. Our thankfulness to the Father will deepen its expression as we continue to grow in the realization of all that we have received and all that we are has not been earned or seen as something as we deserved. No, beloved, all that we have, all that we are, is a gift from the Father of lights. By the act of God, we have been called, we have been qualified, we have been sanctified, we have been made righteous, we have been justified, and now we are sharing and will share in the inheritance of the saints in the light, in the realm of the kingdom of light. It is only God who has provided what any and all sinners need to be considered worthy to be called the people of God. This imagery of light is also seen in Paul's, his polemical use. What we find in Ephesians 5, specifically verse 9, where he's exhorting these believers to also walk as children of light and the fruit of the light. This light in the Lord is a fruit that consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. It's a fruit that results from walking in his power, pleasing him in all respects. And in it, it is, in a direct sense, the putting on of the armor of Christ. This is the same fruit he is calling the Colossians to walk in and for us to walk in. There is no difference. One additional perspective is to see that what God provided for his people in earlier days 
and that earthly inheritance in Canaan, that, that physical land for possession, Paul now has in view here this, this eternal inheritance, the spiritual privilege for God's covenant people, which now includes the Gentiles, praise God, and it is one that belongs in a higher plane, one that is more enduring and even more satisfying and fulfilling than a terrestrial Canaan because it is Christ himself. This is worthy of full gratitude and thanks to God the Father. And Paul concludes his, his prayer report to these saints. He, he changes the pronoun here to a, a first-person plural intentionally. And it's to show a, a confessional sense of the power, of work and power of God's, both his negative position, action, and his positive action. But it's in reference to all believers, and to Paul, and to the Colossian brethren. We saw that the content of verse 12 points to the conversion of the Gentiles as they share in the inheritance that was, that was thought to have been reserved for the Jews, But now in verse 13, Paul's showing us the universal impact of God's salvific act through his Son. So in describing the root of our thanksgiving, we must remind and preach to ourselves all that God has delivered to us. That he alone has performed a supernatural spiritual rescue operation of our souls from the dominion of darkness. This is the negative work that God has done and the dominion of sin from rulers and forces of this darkness. And in a concurrent positive work, he has now transferred us. He has redeemed us into, which into is actually a better rendering here, into the kingdom of his beloved son. A kingdom whose single throne is superior to all other spiritual and earthly thrones. And a son, a ruler, who is unique in all authority and sustaining power and whose work parallels that of the Father. This kingdom of his beloved Son has throughout the New Testament a twofold aspect for us to see. One, it is already broken into this world through the power of Christ over the domain of darkness. We see that in Matthew 12, 28 and Luke 11, 20. And two, it will break through in hopefully not too distant future, one day in the fullness of resplendent glory at his second coming. For us, what we have in this glorious reality is a great example of truly realized eschatology. That which in its fullness lies ahead of us has actually already become effective in us. If you are a justified child of God, Paul speaks of this very distinctly in Romans 8.30. He says, those whom he justified, he also glorified. And the reality for believers that he has begun a good work in us is the guarantee that it will be brought to fruition in the day of Christ Jesus. It It is actually in the experience of our heartfelt anticipation in our eager awaiting of that glory yet to be revealed, where we genuinely experience a foretaste of this future glory. For our inheritance 
of the saints and light has not been received in its coming fullness. But the divine act by which we have been fitted for has already taken place through this glorious rescue and redemption and in the complete forgiveness of all our sins. To God alone be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. O Lord, we magnify and praise your holy name for the work that you have accomplished through crushing your own beloved son and through him for us, O God, to rescue us, to ransom us, to make the payment due to you for our souls that we could not pay and to transfer us into this beloved kingdom. Father, as, as members, as children, as inheritors of this kingdom, Lord, I pray that we would truly, in our minds, in our heart's desire, ask of you, seek of you, and knock, Father, for the power that we need to live each day, for the grace that we need each day, Father, to walk in a manner pleasing to you, to bear fruit of righteousness, peace, and joy through the Holy Spirit, to know your love and to impart your love. And, Father, to truly be ambassadors of your glorious gospel, Thank you for this word, Father. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the reality and the finished work of Christ Jesus. May we know him and grow in him more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.